so I'm at all of these places basically a computational linguist, which means I basically apply uh, machine learning to tasks involving speech and language. And in all cases, I'm basically applying these to um, uh, tasks in healthcare. Um, so today, I'll be talking about healthcare and machine learning very generally, but with some dips into uh, speech and language, and in particular, some of my work. Uh, again, because I'm a computational linguist, I'm not a philosopher or even an ethicist, so um, we'll be kind of naively touching on some of those issues, but I'll try to keep myself away from going too deep into some of the, the technical issues. So before I talk about the future of automated healthcare, I wanted to talk about the present of automated news uh, and talk a little bit about Facebook. So um, it's the case that a lot of people these days are getting their news through uh, social media, and in particular 61% of millennials from Facebook. Now, uh, Facebook has a lot of artificial intelligence behind the scenes that perform pretty innocuous, uh, simple uh, tasks. Uh, and the most, uh, one of the most important one of these artificial intelligence algorithms is one that tries to maximize your engagement with the website, right? So from one point of view, um, it's good that you engage with the website. That means you're seeing things that you are interested in, so you're happy. And there's also another kind of consequence. Facebook is happy because it understands more about its users, and it can sell you and your preferences to advertisers. So that's a bit nefarious, but generally the idea is engagement is good. It's a pretty innocuous idea. So this is the only equation in the talk, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, mm -hmm. um, basically, when Facebook decides what to show you in terms of news, it'll have a bunch of different web pages available to you, and it'll decide which will sort them um, by some statistics or probability and decide which of the top-ranking pages are the best to show you. So in other words, it'll try to maximize the probability of engagement given a particular page for all of the available pages, and it'll rank based on these probabilities. So it's hard to tell if this is the exact formula that they use, um, but the idea is that machine learning will both learn models of, uh, given a page, how likely are you to like it, uh, and given a page, how likely are you to comment on it, uh, given a page, how likely are you to share it, and so on. So it'll learn each of these probabilities by looking through lots of data, and it'll also combine all of these different probabilistic models using some other uh, parameters, lambda. So it'll learn a bunch of these different uh, parameters using uh, observations and machine learning. It may not exactly be like this, but this is the general idea. So um, it turns out that um, using simple heuristics, uh, Facebook is able to learn, um, and through data, it's able to learn that you're more likely to like something. So the probability of liking a page goes up if your like-minded friends also like this page, uh, and if you agree with the content politically, uh, because it's confirmation bias. So if you're a conservative, you're more likely to like conservative news. If you're a liberal, you're more likely to like liberal news, uh, and so on. So therefore, as it learns this um, aspect of your personality and your behavior, it's more likely to show you the kinds of pages that it will think you'll like. So this basically is sort of like having a finger on the scale, and it provides a sort of feedback loop, right? So the more you use the system, the more it learns about you, uh, but the more it learns about you, the more you behave in a way that it expects, and so on. And the result is that if you know a, you, the system learns that you're more conservative, it'll show you more conservative news stories, and then you'll click on those more conservative news stories because they're already available to you, 
and they'll present you even more conservative stories. So therefore, what we see in social media is sort of a bifurcation where liberals see extremely liberal news articles, conservatives see very conservative news articles. So conservatives might see something like Hillary Clinton pedophile sex tape is about to be released or something like this. And then the result of this is that the rest of us end up seeing news like this, a man charged in gunfire at pizzeria cites fake news of child sex slaves, right? So this kind of this uh, epidemic of, of legitimately fake news is actually starting to affect how we view the world and how we communicate with each other. Um, so this is the kind of news story we're more likely to see when we're talking about artificial intelligence. Usually they're pretty nefarious. Robots are coming for your jobs, they're coming for your family, and they're coming for, for you and so on. Um, but the risk is not really that, that you know, there's going to be nefarious uh, AI agents coming after you um, in an evil way. But I think the main problem is that the artificial intelligence will actually be very obedient. Um, but it'll, it'll be obedient to reward functions or objective functions or purposes that are the result of uh, human laziness. So we define the objectives in a lazy way, and the AI just learns to maximize those, those objectives. So the social media example shows us that simple algorithms that are basically designed for simple, innocuous purposes can have very disastrous, unintended consequences if it's mixed with the human biases, both the user and the creator. I love this quote by Marshall McLuhan. It's one of my favorites. First we shape our tools, and thereafter our tools shape us, which I think is very applicable to social media, but also to artificial intelligence. So all of this is a sort of like a prologue. This is what's happening in social media. Now, is there a parallel to what's happening in social media in machine learning and healthcare? So today we'll talk about current trends for artificial intelligence for healthcare. Uh, then we'll go on to some technical risks that exist at a high level. Just we're going to see if we can patch them. We're going to see what regulatory hurdles exist and how we can or should uh, surmount or circumvent them to get machine learning software being used in the healthcare system. And then we're going to kind of look into our crystal ball and see uh, what changes might be coming for society based on uh, increased use of machine learning. So current trends in machine learning. So this is my kind of uh, take as to what the hot new areas of machine learning are currently. Um, there might be more than this, um, but if you go to a machine learning conference or read a machine learning journal, uh, the cutting edge, which means things that are being actively researched now include things like still deep neural networks, of course, which we've all heard about. Uh, big data, of course, which you've all heard about. Um, and then a bit more technical, there's things called recurrent neural networks um, that deal with temporal or dynamic data. So neural networks that are specifically designed to look at change over time. Uh, fourth is reinforcement learning. These are machine learning agents that basically work in the real world and can perform tasks or interventions in the real world. And they try to maximize their utility in the real world. Uh, fifth is active learning, which involves a lot of feedback between machine and human. Sixth is telehealth and remote monitoring. This is more specific to healthcare, but the idea generally is that we want people out of hospitals. We want uh, biosensors recorded in their homes. Uh, and seventh, uh, we want, we're looking into causal or explainable models. We'll talk about each of these in, in turn. So this is a, um, a deep neural network. I think you've probably seen these already. Uh, the idea generally is that you take a piece of data, like a picture or a medical record, and you stretch it over a vector that becomes the input to the neural network. And then the information in these nodes in the input layer are transferred through the many layers of the neural network until at the other side comes a label. Um, this person has cancer, they don't have cancer, and so on. Um, and the whole idea of machine learning is you adjust all these weights between these hidden layers. And these hidden layers are actually very important. Um, you know, the name uh, deep learning comes from the fact that we're using many more of these layers than before. 
And these layers usually uh, embody some uh, latent or hidden information in the world. So they represent something in the world that we can't exactly see by looking directly at the data, but there's something in those hidden latent dimensions that allow us to do classification after the fact, right? So they, they learn uh, differences in the real world. Um, so in the early days, machine learning people for many years focused on differentiating cats from dogs. So they'd show lots of pictures of cats and dogs to these deep neural networks, and they'd train the weights of this neural network until the hidden layers learn something about the shapes of ears and whiskers, shapes of tails, and so on. And the end result is that you can show it a picture of a cat at the input layer, and out the other side comes a label as a cat. Um, and machine learning people were very excited about this because the accuracy of these vision-based systems were a lot better than we had been able to achieve with other kinds of uh, machine learning models, and we were very satisfied. But, you know, it's just cats and dogs, so what else can we do? Um, this is a paper from uh, last year in Nature. Um, the idea is to look at images of um, abrasions or um, uh, discolorations on the skin and to try to uh, classify it as a variety of cancerous or other um, um, malignant uh, skin diseases. So these are the kinds of images we feed into the neural network. We have uh, benign images, uh, malignant images, epidermal lesions, um, melanocytic lesions, uh, and so on. Now, for you and me, we probably can't tell these images apart. They all look kind of the same to us, but a highly trained dermatologist can look at these images and tell exactly, okay, this is a malignant uh, epidermal lesion, and this one is not. Okay, so these people wanted to use a neural network, a deep neural network, like the one we saw before, to basically classify malignant uh, from non-malignant images. Okay? So this is a representation of the hidden layer. So remember, the hidden layer encodes uh, information that is useful for us to do classification. And this visualization is something called PISNI. It's a way of kind of uh, projecting all of our data points into a two-dimensional plane that allows us to see these different classes. So already you can see the neural network that was trained on about 130 clinical images um, differentiates uh, nevi, melanomas, and carcinomas pretty well. So these kind of occupy different uh, regions of the visual space. And then when they took this neural network and they compared it against uh, 21 certified dermatologists, so top-of-the-line dermatologists, I'm not sure if you can see this in the back, um, but basically each of these graphs is a sensitivity specificity graph, so we want something to be as close to the top and the right-hand side as possible. Uh, the blue curve is the performance of the neural network as you tweak certain parameters, and these red dots um, closer to the middle are the performance of these human dermatologists. And in all but a very few cases, I think all but one case, uh, the neural network does a better job of identifying uh, cancer, uh, identifying cancer and other uh, malignant skin diseases than these top-of-the-line people. Okay, so the idea now is basically all you need is a, a smartphone camera you can take a picture of something on your on your arm, and then with a tremendous accuracy, better than human-level performance, you're able to tell if it's malignant or not without having to go all the way to to Princess Market Hospital or whatever. Um, the second kind of trend in machine learning is, is big uh, data. So um, one criticism of, of deep learning is that it requires lots and lots of data uh, to train upon. One benefit of having lots and lots of data to train upon is that the need to pre-process those data decrease. So as a computational linguist, normally when I'm given a small amount of data, like a few thousand samples or something, we have to do a lot of work to, to remove noise from the data. It's acoustic noise, like hissing sounds, but also aspects of text that mess with the um, machine learning process. That's not really necessary for big data, which is an advantage. Um, in, all, you, in supervised learning, we always need labels. Um, and in healthcare, where we have like tremendous amount of hundreds of thousands of points of data, of pictures and CT scans and so on, usually we also have uh, labels. So people have performed uh, validated tests. Uh, we have diagnostic codes from doctors and so on. So we have supervised data that comes with the big data in healthcare. 
but also big data allows us to do um, unlabeled, uh, unsupervised training, cluster analysis, which is something that we really couldn't do with small amounts of data before. But I think the real promise of big health data in particular is in the interconnections that exist between uh, the sets. So one of the biggest data sets in Ontario is a data set uh, from ISIS, the Institutes for Clinical Evaluative Sciences near Sunnybrook. Um, and they have 700,000 patients uh, across Ontario. And within this large database, they have lots of smaller little databases, including things like uh, use of uh, pharmacies, use of assistive devices, visits to family doctor, and so on. And the key thing is not to look at these data sets by themselves, but looking at interlinks between them. So when somebody visits a family doctor, do they actually uh, get the drugs that they were prescribed in the first place? So we can connect these, these databases together. One example of why interlinking is important is this other paper from 2009 uh, in BMJ. So what these people wanted to do is they wanted to look at uh, text records in a variety of electronic medical records from uh, injury and psychiatry, urology, infection, gastroenterology, skeletal, and so on. Each of these colored little bars represents an entry in one of these electronic medical record systems. Um, green basically means everything is fine. Red means there's some cause for concern. Um, and the purpose of this paper was to identify when people were the subject um, of domestic abuse. Okay? So in this particular case, the particular woman for whom all these, these uh, entries were made, she was diagnosed as being the victim down here at point zero. Uh, and we have records going back um, almost uh, four years. Now, uh, none of these individual doctors were able to diagnose uh, domestic abuse by themselves because they didn't have these interconnections with other doctors and the EMR systems that they're trying to put together. But when you combine information from a variety of sources, the machine learning systems they use, which are a very simple Bayesian model, like a probabilistic model, was able to predict that this woman was the victim of domestic abuse about three years before she was diagnosed by humans. Right? So a combination of machine learning with text um, and the interconnection between a variety of these, these relatively big data sources can have profound effects on the well-being of people. Uh, the third trend is recurrent uh, networks and uh, uh, time sequences. So basically, each of these little columns represents a neural network, kind of like the one we saw before. But now we have interconnections over time. So the idea is, imagine you're reading some text. You have a neural network that reads the word the, and it encodes some hidden information about the. Then it reads the word patient. It encodes some information about the word patient, and it combines it with information it had about the. And it keeps on going down the line like this. It reads the word lupus and combines that information with information about has and patient and the and so on. At the end of the sequence, the hidden layer we have, the thing that kind of presented us with that nice pretty graph, has encoded uh, everything in the sequence, including temporal dynamics. Okay? Now, that's used for a lot of purposes, for reading text um, among them. Uh, but one problem with this pretty simple approach is that it's pseudo-Markov. Uh, and if you're not careful, it'll forget things that occurred in the distant past. Right? So um, once you've encoded lupus, you know, it's overwritten the hidden state so many times. Um, information about maybe patient has been uh, overwritten. So for example, this network might have almost no idea what to predict once it reads, I grew up in France, so I'm pretty good at speaking X. Right? We expect it to be French, but France occurred so long ago in the past that the neural network forgot about it. So there's a variety of solutions to this problem. Uh, one of my favorites is something called a long short-term memory network. The details aren't important, but this little box um, is basically you know, under the hood of one of these little boxes. Actually, it's under the hood of one of the neurons that we saw in the earlier slide. And what the long short-term memory network does is it learns what aspects of the input to pay attention to, uh, what aspects of the memory to keep, and what aspects of the memory to forget about. So there's connections inside of these neurons that says, OK, I'll remember the word France 
and I'll forget the word the and so on. Um, and it, the results are very good with LSTMs, long short-term net, uh, memory networks. Topic recurrent networks are another um, uh, recurrent neural network that kind of solves this problem by, have, by having a couple of hidden layers that remember uh, stuff in the distant past, another couple of hidden layers that remember stuff in the medium past, and another couple of hidden layers that remember stuff in the recent past. So you kind of have these gears turning at different rates and remembering things at different uh, times ago. So um, one way that we can use long um, short-term memory networks or recurrent neural networks um, is in processing signals, for example, in the pediatric ICU. So when a baby comes in the pediatric ICU, we usually put all kinds of sensors on them. Uh, so we have you know, dozens of, of uh, high-frequency sensor information coming in. And if we only look at the very recent past, um, this trend from one baby and this trend from another baby will look more or less the same. We have a downward trend that look very similar. But if you have a neural network that can remember things in the past, one neural network, you know, you'll, you'll be able to identify, okay, this baby started off with a low heart rate and it went way up and now it's coming back down again, whereas this baby has been declining for quite some time. And this is a different uh, diagnostic case. The fourth case, reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning was sort of inspired by behaviorist psychology. So the idea generally is that instead of taking lots of pictures of cats and dogs and training a system while you go and get your coffee or whatever, uh, coming back and getting the system, the system has to engage with you in the real world. Uh, so the idea generally is that um, it, the system makes imperfect observations with noise in it, like we mentioned a moment ago. Uh, it uses those imperfect observations to imagine what the hidden state of the world is. Um, and then given that imagined hidden state of the world, it'll take some action. Okay? The action it takes uh, is chosen in order to either maximize the reward that it expects to get, um, or to minimize an expected cost. So uh, a re reinforcement learning system in the healthcare uh, system uh, might have a reward that the patient, um, you know, stabilize in the hospital, make it a cost that the patient did not, or the patient um, got transferred to the ICU and so on. So two main challenges for reinforcement learning um, in healthcare, but everywhere too, is that these rewards and costs are usually supplied by humans as little discrete bits of, of code. So we decide what's good, we decide what's bad. Uh, and also in order to learn properly uh, and effectively, these reinforcement learning algorithms need to, need to perform some experiments in the real world. It has to explore a little bit, right? And obviously we don't want these systems to explore too much when we're dealing with patients with um, micro death situations. Here's a little plug for some of my work. So we have a project uh, called Ludwig where we have a little robot that we have in a long-term care facility and the robot talks to people with Alzheimer's disease about their lives and about pictures and so on in kind of a pro-social sort of way. It's an extremely simple robot. Um, the way it works is that at every time step, uh, the robot listens to what the person said. That's the speech, that's the imperfect observation. And then it uses that imperfect observation to make guesses about the state of the world. So it guesses whether the person with Alzheimer's disease is confused. It guesses at how far along this task of describing themselves or this picture, how far along they've gotten. Uh, and it also makes some inferences about the overall cognitive state of these older adults. Okay? And Ludwig um, gets a reward that we provided to it. It gets a reward if the person talks more about themselves, so if they advance in the task. And it gets a penalty um, if they get confused. Uh, and it applies the reward or the cost uh, according to what it says next. So it can offer an action, it can, it can make an encouraging comment, uh, it could uh, make an explicit request to describe something, it can repeat something it said previously, it can sing a song to the person or something. Okay? So um, that's how Ludwig works, um, but this is also an example of where reinforcement learning can go wrong. When we started working with 
Ludwig. All we wanted to have happen was we wanted Ludwig to make sure the person did not get confused. So we didn't have a hidden space for task. Uh, so if, if the person gets confused, Ludwig gets a penalty. Uh, but then very quickly, uh, Ludwig learned um, the best way to avoid confusion at, in the first place or at all is just never to say anything whatsoever to the, the patient, so it was completely silent to them, which is why we added this extra task variable. But this is a very simple system, and even with people who deal with machine learning, it's very easy to, to make mistakes of that type. Uh, this is a paper uh, from uh, Reg Prakar et al, uh, published in the uh, Machine Learning for Health uh, workshop at NIPS, which is a big machine learning uh, conference in December. So what it does is uh, it asks, it, it, the actions it takes is it asks questions of people um, and the observations are what the person said and the hidden state is whether the person has malaria or not. So here's an example of like a chatbot uh, talking to a person, what is the main floor material in your house, earth sand, is your residential area urban or rural, <laughs> urban and so on. So the machine chooses what questions to ask. Uh, and very quickly the system is able to identify whether the person has malaria simply by asking questions about the state of their, their house. And I think um, this is in the crystal ball a little bit, but I think any interaction with a simulated human doctor, like a, something that you think is prescribing things or making diagnostic decisions, reinforcement learning is, is very likely to be behind that process simply because uh, the system is performing an action in the real world. Okay? But while we go forward with these systems, these artificial doctors that are prescribing things and making diagnostic uh, decisions, in all cases, we have to be very careful that um, the rewards and costs that we're providing are useful, um, and that the exploration we're doing when we're prescribing things and making decisions is not too crazy. Okay? The fifth trend is active learning. So active learning basically is sort of a human-in-the-loop system where the machine decides, um, you know, here's a set of uh, points of data that I'm kind of unsure about. Do you mind please annotating them for me or giving me the correct classes? Um, and the human comes back and it feeds back into the system and the computer and the human learn together. So the NIH had um, a study published in, uh, I think it was 2016, in which they showed that this sort of um, collaborative approach can be very useful. So what they showed was that the top AI system uh, made uh, errors 7.5% of the time when it was trying to diagnose uh, cancer. And compared to a pathologist, which is still better than the machine, who gets 3.5%, um, you know, just great ballpark, but, but not better. But when they combined sort of like a Google-like active learning approach um, where the system could say, this is my differential diagnostic of what I think the person might have, and then the human was allowed to go in and, and tweak the errors, the combined, um, uh, the combination of the machine and the human got 0.5% errors according to other uh, diagnostic categories. So this is a tremendous uh, improvement, right? And it shows the value of, of us not working against our, our mechanical brethren, but with them. Um, there's a very good paper also in 2016 uh, about interactive machine learning for health informatics um, published in, in Springer Brain Informatics. Okay, so our Facebook scenario from before at the same time was an example of active learning, right? So the machine learning in Facebook says, these are the pages I think you'll like, but I'm not quite sure. Why don't you tell me if you like them or not? And then the human says, yeah, I like these ones. And then the machine learning goes back and it readjusts its models and so on. So Facebook, in that case, is an example of active learning. And it can, unlike this example, go wrong. Sixth out of seven um, involves telemedicine, OK? So this is another plug for some of my work. Um, usually when people get assessed for cognitive disorders, they have to travel to a family doctor. It takes hours to get there. Um, uh, they wait in the waiting room, they get assessed by someone with a white lab coat, which is scary by itself. They take a very coarse 
uh, assessment like the uh, MOCA, which gave Donald Trump a 30 out of 30 just mm -hmm. in passing, um, and the MNSCs and so on. Um, it's very costly to them and to the healthcare system. Uh, but one thing we've noticed is that language uh, can provide a very detailed lens into your cognition, your sentiment. How you're feeling is normally exhibited through how you sound and speak. Uh, it's also the case that language decline is, is um, usually the second uh, faculty that's affected in Alzheimer's disease after memory. We also know that specific brain regions have particular linguistic functions, so Broca's area, a damage to Broca's area is associated with difficulty remembering the right word for something. Damage to Wernicke's area a bit further back is associated with, with typical prosody, rhythm of speech, but jumbled speech, um, and so on. So we wanted to see if we could use language and machine learning to identify cognitive decline on your phone. So what we have is a data set of um, about 170 people with Alzheimer's disease, 100 people without Alzheimer's disease, and each of them described this paper, which is part of a Boston uh, aphasia assessment. Uh, so it takes about 45 seconds to a minute to describe this image in their own words um, on their couch, not in the doctor's office. And then we take that speech and we extract tons of features from that speech. Um, we're up to about two and a half thousand different aspects of their speech, including things like uh, how complex their vocabulary is, how many demonstrative words they use, uh, the average word length, which is all word level measures. We measure how complex the grammatical structure is, how often they use coordinate conjunctions. From the acoustic, we measure things like uh, how often do they pause relative to how often they're actually speaking words and so on. And we take all of these 2,000 features and project them down into two dimensions using a factor analysis. We can see that the people with Alzheimer's in red and without Alzheimer's in blue project differently on a space we identify as involving semantic impairment, so impairment of meaning. Uh, and syntactic impairment, so impairment of grammar. And machine learning algorithms where we apply to this uh, are able to tell whether or not you have Alzheimer's disease with up to now 92% accuracy, just given about um, 45 seconds of your speech. And this is where the company comes in. So this is a disclaimer. Uh, this work has been um, encapsulated in this company called Winterlight, which is now using this sort of technologies uh, alongside pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson and long-term care facilities like Rivera. So the same basic approach of measuring very specific aspects of language and feeding them into a machine learning system uh, can also be applied to um, other things like neuropsychiatric disorders, such as depression and anxiety. Um, so this is a completely fictional example of a case where we have people tweeting, and then we have like a validated uh, assessment of depression. So the Hamilton rating of depression is one of these. Zero means you're totally happy. Uh, 50 means you're extremely unhappy. And the old-fashioned way of doing computational linguistics was to look through each of these words uh, and have it, having a dictionary of happy words and a dictionary of sad words and basically counting up how many words occur in each of these dictionaries, okay? So in the first case, the word best is extremely happy and, of course, it's associated with someone with no depression. In the second case, we have two happy words, sunny and pleasant. We also have a negative word, rain, so they're not entirely joyous uh, and they have something in the Hamilton rating for depression around eight, so it's not quite so good. But old-fashioned computational linguistics would break down in cases of sarcasm and noise and corner cases and a variety of, of situations where the simple counting of words in dictionaries didn't really apply. So for example, if somebody said, I'm glad that this stupid sunny day is over, we still have two happy words. We have one negative word with a very different situation with regards to somebody's cognitive well-being in that case. They're being sarcastic, they're actually very depressed. Um, here's some examples of people interacting with Siri from not very long ago. Uh, and this kind of accentuates the risk of people with neuropsychiatric disorders relying too much, having too much faith 
into machine learning uh, in our phones and so on. So up until very recently, if you said to Siri, I want to sleep and never wake up, she sees the word sleep and hears some hotels in your neighborhood. If she tells Siri, remind me to kill myself tomorrow, she'll say, okay, I'll remind you. And uh, if you say, I'm going to jump off a bridge and die, she sees the word bridge and says, okay, I'll look at the map and here's some bridges near, near you. These are all real examples from Siri. Uh, about a year ago, um, this sort of behavior made its way into the media and Apple quickly patched it. Uh, so humans went in and wrote some code to look for particular patterns that might indicate depression. But it still is the case that you know machines don't think like us. Um, so we have to be very careful if we uh, putting too much trust in, into them. So can we avoid the situation? Uh, or if it does, and it certainly will happen, how can we actually re uh, assign responsibility? Okay. So this is the seventh kind of trend in machine learning, and that involves causal explainable models. Okay. So two of the variety of criticisms uh, of neural networks are one, um, that the patterns it learns are correlation and not causation. Okay, so neural networks basically tend to learn to associate the input features, like you know the pixels and a picture of a cat, with the output features, like the label cat or dog and so on. Uh, but there's no abstract logic that links these together. If I see pointy ears, then it's a cat. Uh, there's no interpretable reasoning, so you can't see in the neural network where it's making its decisions. It's just multiplying matrices together. Um, and it's definitely not the case that you, you can say you cannot say it's not logical to say that a particular biomarker that you observe at the input, it actually causes a particular disease you predict at the output. Okay, certainly not if you've trained a model on a big set of data and you're evaluating it on some new set of data. Okay, so that's one main criticism of neural networks. You can't, you can't explain that. Um, the second one is um, certainly that looking into these matrices of numbers, uh, there's no way looking at this is, the in, this is uh, inside of one of my neural networks. There's no one of these, no, none of these numbers really tells you um, why the neural network made a decision. Uh, so you can't really assign responsibility for an incorrect diagnostic uh, to one column or one element of a table that's large and complex and there's basically just a bunch of real numbers. So along these lines, um, at a bit of a higher level, um, there's a decent textbook on artificial intelligence by Russell and Norvig, and it's very abstract and high level, and in it they talk about if we're going to develop artificial intelligence, what is the best way to go about it? And they, they show four different sort of mutually exclusive uh, approaches. So either we should make our systems think rationally, uh, or they should act rationally, or they should think like a human, or they should act like a human. Okay. So for we don't know how humans think, so we can't be that one. Uh, sometimes we don't want things to be perfectly rational. Uh, often when we try to encode logic in like an old-fashioned deterministic uh, coding sort of way, things always break down because humans who provide that code are also imperfect. So our approach generally is to make our systems, we try to make them act like a human, okay? So we give it lots of pictures, and we say this is how a human labels these pictures. Now you figure out how to imitate us, okay? So we show a picture of this image of clouds, and we say a human sees a picture of some of Charles Darwin in the clouds, okay? So you should see a picture of Charles Darwin in these clouds too. And that's how we train our neural networks. There's another great paper um, called Deep Neural Networks Are Easily Fooled, which basically trains these neural networks on uh, pictures and they're very accurate for typical data. But they also trained an adversarial uh, system that generated synthetic images in order to fool the neural network. Uh, and these are some of the images that that adversarial system came up with. Um, so with more than 99% confidence, the neural network thinks that this is a peacock, and this is a centipede, and these squiggly lines is a starfish, and these squiggly lines is a baseball, and so on, okay? So whereas you and I can look at the same cloud and we can both see the same face in the cloud, 
neural networks learn things in a very, very different way. And when a neural network sees these squiggly lines and says, well, oh, that's definitely a starfish, and we don't see that, and that raises possibly some concern if the neural network is, is diagnosing us. <coughs> so those are basically the main trends <coughs> in machine learning uh, that I see. And now we want to see some technical and ethical risks. I know that technical is an anagram of an ethical. Um, so there's a really good paper that came out in 2016, Concrete Problems in AI Safety, published by people in uh, OpenAI and Google Brain, mostly. And in it, they identify these sort of main issues that we're going to have to solve with uh, machine learning in the near future. We want to avoid negative side effects. We want to avoid reward hacking. We want to uh, ensure scalable oversight. I'll explain that soon. We want to ensure robustness to distributional shift. I'll explain that soon. And we also want to ensure that a system can explore safely if it's making decisions in the real world. Okay. All of these things obviously apply to healthcare. One way we can avoid negative side effects, so making uh, disastrous decisions with regards to painful interventions or wrong diagnostics, um, is that we can include something called an impact regularizer that penalizes massive changes to the environment, so make sure that the neural network doesn't have very much power in the real world. But that involves uh, telling the system how to actually represent change in the real world if observing that change is also open to interpretation. The second way we can avoid negative side effects, in particular in healthcare, is that we can penalize influence. So we can just simply give the machine less stuff that it can do in the first place. Uh, so we can limit the amount of, or scope of resources available. But how does the system uh, represent its own empowerment? Um, and should we penalize the uh, AI doctor, if it can take an action with a patient, or if it does take an action with a patient. That's something we have to think about. So reward hacking, once again, is a situation where we have a simple reward function that seems nice on its surface, but um, if you train a system just to optimize a reward function, you can quickly fall into a, a trap or a pit problem we saw on Facebook. So uh, one way we might be able to solve this problem is not to basically just compute these things completely uh, you know, uh, stochastically using just simple linear combinations of numbers. But we want to represent goals in a more abstract way um, that allows some more high-level interpretation that's more qualitative and less quantitative. That's obviously very difficult to do for a computer. We want to avoid Goodhart's law. So Goodhart's law says when a metric is used as a target, it ceases to be a good metric. Okay. So imagine um, our target is that we want the patient to stop coming into the office, we want them to be healthy in the real world. And we learn, okay, if I give this patient lots of drugs, they'll stop coming into the office, therefore a good thing to do is to give them tons of drugs because that'll keep them from coming into the office. This is a situation where the um, target you're using actually should be a metric and not the end result. But it's very easy to confuse what is a target that you're trying to optimize and what is just a metric that is correlated with the target. So for scalable oversight and distributional shift, we want to make sure that if we train a system in our lab at the University of Toronto on those you know, 200 people with Alzheimer's disease and 100 people without, that it will scale well to the entire population. Okay, so one thing we're experiencing with Winterlight right now is that all of the data that we started with involved English speakers speaking English. Um, but when we're using it in practice, we have a lot of people who have a variety of other languages as their first language. And when they speak English, you know, they, they speak more slowly, they pause more, they have a less rich vocabulary, and so on. And it doesn't mean that they have Alzheimer's disease, certainly. So we have to make sure that when we take a model and apply it to the real world, uh, we have to uh, make sure that we're not you know, ignoring uh, possible consequences of that type. So active learning can help. So the system can say, I'm not quite sure, can you tell me a bit about these corner cases or these cases that I'm not sure how to annotate? and a human can come in um, and help out with these difficult situations. So that's an example where active learning can help out. 
so fourth, distributional shift. So a distributional shift, again, is similar. It's the idea that you learn a model on one set of data and you evaluate it on a very different kind of data. Um, so when that happens, the system should be able to recognize the difference between what it learned in the past and what it sees before us. So our machine learning systems have to, in some way, uh, acknowledge their own ignorance about the new data that they have in a new way. And they also have to resist shifting the models too quickly. Okay, so imagine if we have the 700,000 patient database I mentioned earlier, with a very exact model learned on those data, and now we're being used by a small clinic with maybe a few thousand patients in it. You know, some machine learning algorithms very quickly change all those probabilities to the new set of data, and it forgets everything we learned on the, the population, the very general data, and that's a problem we want to avoid also. So there's ways to do that that I don't have to get into. So safe exploration. So again, autonomous learning requires some exploration. Uh, and sometimes the system has to make non-optimal choices uh, in order to see what would happen if it made that choice. Okay, so we need to have bounds on what the system can do. We need to sometimes maybe do simulated um, experiments, not in the real world, and see what rewards you expect. Um, that can be amplified a little bit. We also want to limit the explorative influence on the distributions. What do I mean by that? So currently, when you see your doctor, um, if they're associated with the University of Toronto or another um, university that has a healthcare program, the doctor can just be operating in clinical mode, in which case you come in for depression, the doctor knows that drug X is useful for depression, so it'll, it'll explain it to you and it'll prescribe the drug X. But if the doctor flips a switch and they're in researcher mode, they'll say, you're a good patient for me to involve in the study I'm doing. Um, I'm going to present to you uh, either drug X or drug Y. I'll explain both of them together, but I'll give you one randomly. Um, and you have to sign this form. And I'm going to take your data and put it in another box than I normally would. And other people you don't know are going to fiddle around with it and so on. Um, so a different set of ethics apply when the doctors flip their switch into researcher mode and when they flip it into clinician mode. And it's not always obvious when they go back and forth. But it kind of works currently. But with AI, the AI never really stops learning. So every time it diagnoses someone with cancer uh, and it sees what happens, um, then it learns from that um, situation. So the AI doctor is always in clinical mode and in researcher mode. Okay, So some kind of new approach to how we uh, differentiate between these two things is going to have to be uh, figured out. Uh, so nowhere is this more evident than in regulation of medical devices. Okay, so the way when you have a medical tool based on software that we want to have um, regulated, so people can actually buy it, we have to go through Health Canada or the FDA in the states. If we're doing a clinical trial, also we have very stringent requirements for how we proceed. And in all cases, the idea generally is that we write the software, we comment it very carefully, uh, we have all this documentation for it, we put it onto a compact disc or a floppy disk. And we send it by mail to the FDA or Health Canada and so on. Okay, but that really doesn't work um, with artificial intelligence whatsoever, right? So again, as soon as the AI does anything in the real world, it updates its model, and suddenly the behavior of the software is different than it was two seconds ago. So therefore, this idea that we have a software that always operates in the current state doesn't really work anymore. Okay, so new approaches to how we regulate medical devices is going to have to um, take place. It is kind of taking place. So a few years ago, there was something passed in the House of Representatives in the States called the 20, 21st Century Cures Act. Um, and it's been, it was modified a little bit, and apparently it's now law. Uh, the idea now is that the FDA can loosen its requirements on um, when it regulates medical devices. And it has a sort of general wellness product, like your Fitbit or uh, an app to help you meditate. And these kinds of software don't require um, full-on regulation, uh, you can just get uh, approved uh, much more easily. 
and the Affordable Care Act, um, which um, its status is not exactly known. So depending on what exactly is in this tax bill that was passed in the States, some changes were made to healthcare in that country. Um, but at least when the Affordable Care Act was introduced, it rewarded a lot of the kind of health IT that we like. It took a much more modern approach. And in fact, the previous White House had a very uh, mature and intelligent um, report on artificial intelligence in which they describe AI as increasing medical efficiency, patient comfort, and reducing waste. So there was this kind of image in the FDA and the White House and government that machine learning should come to, um, to uh, healthcare. So last, sort of the, the, the uh, elephant in the room. So all these systems, what's going to happen when they actually are used in practice? Are they coming after our jobs? And if you read the media, like everywhere from Global Mail to Ars Technica, Fortune, there's tons of articles about uh, computer doctors coming to take over um, and replace your human doctors. There's a great quote by Vinod Kosla, who's a, a, founder of, a co founder of Sun Microsystems, and now he invests in a lot of AI startups in healthcare. He says technology will replace 80% of of what doctors do in, in a decade or two. Okay. So is that really the case? Um, so the World Economic Forum about a year and a half ago published a report on the future of jobs uh, generally uh, because of this incoming um, IT revolution. And surprisingly, a lot of um, jobs from media to professional services, financial services, uh, the change in employment is still going to be positive uh, over the next, uh, well, over the, the five years that they were studying. But healthcare, they said, is going to be negative job growth, uh, and the skills required to do healthcare aren't really going to change very much. It basically means, implies, that healthcare workers, some of them are going to keep on doing what they're doing, and some of them are going to be downsized. Um, so what these doctors do, these doctors that remain, um, is 80% of what doctors do, what do they do all day? So doctors, like the rest of us, are humans, and humans are very bad with information. Uh, generally, we have very particular ways in which we um, uh, fall to uh, logical fallacies. Uh, so the first case is that patients often misread or miscommunicate their own symptoms. There are some statistics that um, half of American adults have difficulty understanding and acting upon health information. So I, I work a lot with doctors also, and they also kind of uh, corroborate this, that about 50% of the time the patient you know, it takes the first couple of days of their two weeks of medicine. They say, I feel better, so I'm going to take the rest of this medicine. That's precisely not what the doctor said in the first place. So the, the people don't know how to deal with medical information. Human doctors also are subject to faulty memory. Uh, their skills become obsolete very quickly. Uh, they have all the regular cognitive biases. Um, there's some studies that show they have recency biases. So there was um, one that shows that uh, if you show doctors, uh, in this one study anyway, uh, advertising about certain kinds of interventions or drugs, they're more likely to, um, to prescribe those drugs. Uh, the Winters a few years ago showed that there's about uh, 40 and a half thousand patients who die in ICU in the US every year, uh, and they die because of misdiagnosis, misdiagnosis of one type or another. Graeber et al. also talks about this a little bit. They describe that uh, in cases of diagnostic error, uh, in 74% of these uh, 40.5 thousand cases, usually it's a cognitive factor, so um, bias of some kind or fatigue. Um, often the, the cause is, is premature closure, so the doctor says everything's fine when it really isn't. Eddie, in 1990, this is another interesting paper. It's a bit old, but it still kind of applies. What they did was they showed some top surgeons descriptions of surgical problems, and they asked these surgeons, should the patient described here have surgery? And almost exactly 50% of the doctors said, yes, they should have surgery. And the other 50% said, no, they should not have surgery. So it's been pointed out that this is basically no better than flipping 
uh, coin as to whether or not you should have surgery or not. And what's even more worrying is that Eddie et al. Uh, did the same experiment, the same data on the same people a few months later, and almost half of everybody changed their mind on the exact same data after a few uh, weeks have passed. Um, by contrast, uh, there's been lots of studies like the one we showed earlier in which AI um, can be shown to um, either um, reduce costs or reduce expected costs um, uh, to the system and improve outcomes on some simulated data. Okay, so this, this uses a reinforcement learning based approach. So um, this is again the crystal ball. Where will change happen, I think, in, in healthcare in the next few years? Um, this is uh, the spending in Ontario uh, from the CCA, uh, Canadian Institute for Health Information. So 34% of our health dollars are spent in hospitals, 23% on physicians. And it's almost the same in the States, 31% on hospitals, 21% on physicians. These are very big areas um, of the pie. So I'd, I'd expect uh, if you throw a dart randomly at this pie, you're likely to, to politicians are likely to try to find some savings in these areas. Uh, and in particular, uh, Kathleen Wynne uh, a few weeks ago in the Globe and Mail said um, that what they want to do in Ontario is to move from a solely hospital-centered system towards a more community or primary care system. So more telehealth, more telemedicine, more wearable devices. So what does this mean? Um, it's difficult to look into the crystal ball exactly, um, but on one hand, if we do follow this trend of, of uh, reducing the amount of doctors we have and reducing um, the utility of hospitals and putting things up in the community, suddenly the responsibility for the, instead of getting a proper CT scan or a uh, you know, the, uh, clinically validated machine that we have to identify uh, melanomas, and we use our cell phones instead, as you saw in the first example, Similarly, the responsibility for diagnosis is taken away from doctors and put into the hands of Apple and Google and so on. It's already the case that um, healthcare systems across the world kind of favor certain demographics. Um, you can imagine which ones, but certainly um, rich people end up doing better in the healthcare context than poor people. And it turns out that health, rich people are more likely to have iPhones, uh, Fitbits, and Apple Watches and so on. So all of these systems we're going to see um, that can diagnose skin disease from the cell phone cameras, again, are more likely to be used by people who are rich in the first place, who are already advantaged. Um, there's some other issues to overcome. So there's certain protocols that exist um, that can transmit electronic data information. In the States, normally, it's about how much something costs. In Canada, it's usually about what to do about someone's health. But in either case, there's no way to communicate models back and forth between systems. So we're going to have to do something there, too. I'm actually, I'm, I'm on um, a um, subcommittee of the ISO. Um, and we're meeting for the first time in Beijing in April. Um, the idea is what standards should we have in a global level um, for artificial intelligence generally, right? So part of it involves wellness, part of it involves standardizing systems and data and approaches. But generally what we're looking for is how we can use AI in a responsible way going forward. So we'll see what happens at that meeting. But I think it's a good progress. Um, so there's a lot of open questions that come out. Um, so obviously any changes that happen to electronic data interchanges or FDA or Health Canada regulatory systems. Obviously, everything's going to keep on respecting individual rights to the maximum degree we can understand. Um, and at the same time, also, we're all kind of spooked out when Google knows more about us than we know about ourselves, and Facebook is how we get our data, and those machine learning algorithms are making these mistakes and showing us pictures of sex slaves in a pizzeria and so on. It's kind of worrisome that this kind of surveillance capitalism will become increasingly part of our lives. But at the same time, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, if these massive data sources exist, 
Um, and we can use Google or Twitter or Facebook to diagnose uh, mental health, uh, if it's possible to do that, then maybe um, we want to avoid being too conservative and making sure that that fancy database I mentioned before at Sunnybrook just stays at Sunnybrook. It's been sitting there for years, and only now is it coming down to us and the Vector Institute and some others. So we have to be very cautious not to give Google and Facebook too much power, but at the same time, you know, leveraging that kind of power allows us to do a lot of cool stuff on the population level. So you know, the potential of big data is only really met um, if we are a bit more liberal with the data, and patients won't benefit if we're not. So there's already some movement. So there's lots of corporate EMRs. There's one particular company in Canada that's just dominating uh, EMRs in Canada. So more and more of our, of our healthcare data is digital. Um, I mentioned a second ago that there's this partnership between ISIS and Vectors. So there's a little kind of group of us in Vectors that are doing machine learning for health. And we're extremely excited. We have all kinds of plans. We have to be extremely careful um, how we move forward. And also there's a lot of these AI startups popping up in particular in the Mars building, but all around Toronto and the Bay Area and California. Of people basically using things like Fitbit and measurements of your Twitter feed to see how well you're doing and measuring aspects of your health. Okay, in Ontario and Canada, in particular, we have to be careful that you know when the Liberal government is funding Vector and you know Winterlight's getting getting money from the government also. There has to be a balance struck between funding innovation of companies getting into the healthcare space, but also at the same time we have to respect the fact that we're a public system. And in some sense, every time we take a dollar and give it to a startup that has a cool new Apple Watch app, we're taking it away from doctors who work at Princess Margaret, for example. Um, and also there's this question about how to balance population medicine with patient-centered care. Um, the technical differences about how we represent whole populations versus an individual within that population. Technical challenges ahead, but also uh, some regulatory ones. So again, we talked mostly about um, different trends in machine learning that have a major impact in how healthcare will be uh, performed in the near future. And in all these cases, lots of questions that no one, no one really has the answer to, uh, which is who accesses the data, how accurate must these systems be. We show systems like okay, this system is better than, than a person, than the best dermatologist. This system is better than the best oncologist if we combine it with a person and so on. But how accurate um, these systems have to be. How do we weigh the costs associated with allowing these systems to work and defunding certain areas of healthcare in order to fund them? And obviously, who is liable, right? So if a system diagnoses somebody with, with cancer and they go through an expensive um, treatment in terms of they don't have cancer, there's uh, who has the malpractice insurance. So it isn't Apple, that's for sure. So the, the last idea um, actually is a direct copy from something in the New Yorker. I'll just read it to you, but I think it's wonderful. Um, so uh, Sitara um, uh, Mukiji said, uh, the word diagnosis comes from uh, the Greek for knowing a part, which uh, is very much how machine learning works. Machine learning algorithms uh, will only become better at such knowing a part, at partitioning and distinguishing moles from melanomas. Uh, but knowing in all its dimensions transcends those task-focused algorithms. In the realm of medicine, perhaps the ultimate rewards come from knowing together. Thanks very much.